You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, Donald Trump's remorseless advance towards the Republican nomination is forcing politicians and the media to examine more closely and take seriously all the aspects of his policy positions, if they can be dignified as such. But do sweeping statements about foreign policy and making America great again constitute a coherent worldview? Yes, says Washington-based Irish foreign policy analyst Tom Wright, and we should be worried, he says. Two weeks ago, Pope Francis approved in record speed the sanctification of the Albanian nun Mother Teresa, renowned for her work over many years with the poor in India. But the Nobel Prize-winning nun's elevation is deeply controversial. Does it say anything about the politics of Pope Francis? I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'm joined by Patsy McGarry, our religious affairs correspondent in Dublin, and Tom Wright in Washington. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. Tom Wright is an Irish academic and fellow and director of the Project for International Order and Strategy at the Washington-based Brookings Institution think tank. In an article for the Financial Times last week, he, he attempted to penetrate behind the Trump foreign policy bluster to see if A, it made any sense, and B, whether we should be worried. Trump has brought much more light, uh, supposedly, or, or indeed has he, in a major interview in the New York Times. Tom, you made the point that a President Trump would be constrained domestically by Congress and by the Supreme Court from some of his more outlandish policies. That's not so in the sphere of foreign policy, however, so should we be very scared? That's exactly right, Patty. Thank you, firstly, for inviting me on to the to the podcast. Um, I do think um, that uh, a President Trump, I mean, as outlandish as it is to think about that uh, possibility, um, would actually be pretty constrained um, domestically in terms of the damage that he could do to the institutions um, of the country. And so various proposals that he's come up with, whether it's uh, banning all Muslims from entering America or... Um, allowing torture um, would run up against the fact that there are actually laws in the country and there's a court uh, there to enforce those laws and the president is not a king. They have to govern with the uh, support of Congress in order to uh, pass legislation and if they break the laws of the country, Congress can impeach and remove the president from office. So there are lots and lots of checks and balances and that come into play, particularly if a president sort of goes off the deep end in terms of their approach, as we saw in the early 1970s with with Nixon. But internationally, there's actually far fewer checks and balances. The president has their greatest authority in the sphere of foreign policy and national security. And many of the the decisions uh, that the U.S. would take are just for for one person. I mean, right up until including uh, the control over nuclear weapons. Um, But I think the point I was trying to make in the article is that it's not so much that he would invade other countries or or launch wars, although he may indeed um, do um, some of that. But there's a lot of things that the U.S. does around the world that is pretty important to uh, international stability and to peace and security. um, And he could simply stop doing those things. And so he could pull out of NATO or suspend the U.S.-Japan alliance um, or, you know, strike a bargain with Putin or pull out of all trade deals and, and have a more mercantilist approach. And that would be the equivalent to an earthquake in, in geopolitics and I think would really change 
uh, the international situation for the U.S. and for all countries. And so I think there's a lot of concern around the world that the U.S. may be becoming much less predictable and um, much less uh, uh, you know, stable than it than it than it was uh, than it has been for the last six years. Now, his policy has been characterised as as America first. Um, he wants to make America great again, but there's a very strong element of of isolationism, which appears paradoxical. How how distinct is he uh, from other Republicans in in terms of his foreign policy outlook, and also how distinct is he from from Cruz, his main rival? Yeah, so we actually, I think, haven't seen a a major um, uh, policy, political leader or nominee like him since probably 1940, um, when the when the Republican Party was the, um, it ended up the nomination ended up going to an internationalist, but it looked like an isolationist may um, may uh, have taken that nomination and then run against FDR. So since 1940. Um, all the nominees have basically been internationalists in in their outlook, and internationalism, I think, basically means um, that the U.S. has sort of an outsized role in terms of what it does in the world. That it sees U.S. interests as including a stable Europe and alliances with with uh, European countries through NATO and to cooperation with the EU and in Asia, yeah, alliances with Japan, South Korea, Australia. You know, and others, and then this broader role in trying to provide for an open global economy and, and allowing for sort of trade and commerce and uh, you know access through sea lanes and, and all, all all of that. And he basically um, believes that America is getting a raw deal um, from all of those arrangements, and he wants to either end them and pull back, or he wants to be paid an awful lot of money for providing those um, public goods. Um, and so that is a that really is a fundamental change. Um, it's interesting his use the other day of American First in the transcript was it was put to him and he said he he liked the term. I'm not quite sure he knew the lineage uh, dating back to Charles Lindbergh in in the 30s with sort of the isolationist movement. But interestingly, Ted Cruz actually did use the term America First first in a debate about two or three months ago where he said his foreign policy was. An America first foreign policy, and one has to assume that he knew what he was sort of invoking there. But the general view is that Cruz, um, uh, Cruz probably would not go as so far as Trump on the foreign policy side. I mean, he it would with one major exception. Um, the one major exception is the Middle East, where he's maybe even more extreme um, than Trump, and and is also really in, in, engaged in, in some pretty odious Islamophobia and. And uh, and a very sort of divisive um, uh, position, and um, but on Europe and Asia, he really just hasn't talked very much about it. He hasn't said anything about it. He, it's unlikely that he would go to trouble of trying to pull back from the alliances or really change um, the sort of basic principles of U.S. posture in those regions. Yeah, Trump. Trump's main charge against uh, American allies is that they are ripping. It off uh, that they are basically having a free ride on American security, and he goes through NATO, the Baltics, Japan, South Korea, all of them, saying that he he wants them to start paying more for their own defence. Um, is there something though of an echo of um, Obama's expressions of concern about Europe pulling its weight in 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 its own defence? Yeah, well, um, people have for. 
I mean, for, for basically for decades, American leaders have complained that allies aren't, pay, uh, aren't carrying more of the burden, uh, sort of the burden-sharing argument. Um, and so that's been a, a pretty uh, common sort of theme of, um, of, of U.S. administrations uh, right back into the early Cold War um, years. I think what Trump has said, and Obama was sort of giving voice to, to, to that, and I think maybe pronouncing it in more strident terms um, than maybe some others would. Um, but I think Trump is different because he's not arguing that, you know, Europe should come up to the 2% uh, GDP, you know, a percentage of GDP spend on defense and, and that, you know, Japan should do a little bit more, um, which is the normal thing um, that presidents say. He's really saying that the U.S. has no interest of its own in being in Europe or Asia. And if the U.S. is to be there, then it should be fully compensated, not just for the basing costs and all of that, but for providing, you know, all, you know, the, uh, per, you know, for, for paying for part of the Navy to, to, that will be able to go over to Asia or to Europe and for some pretty basic um, assets and, and uh, you know, assistance. And so that, that I think, would, uh, you know, that would be pretty sort of transformative um, because it would mean not that there will be a, a, a slight recalibration. It would really mean that, um, that the full burden will be borne by, by U.S. allies. And it really assumes, as he said to the Washington Post the other day, that the, you know, he is of the view that there is no benefit for the U.S. in being in Asia at all. And so his, his line is if, if the U.S. is going to be there, then it ought to be uh, fully paid for by others. And that, I think, is a pretty radical you know, point of view because it essentially means that, that you know, the U.S. is sort of agnostic as to whether or not Russia would take over parts of Eastern Europe and that it would only sort of do it if it was, you know, if it was fully sort of compensated for doing so, which is a, uh, you know, is a legitimate view, but it's a very different view than has prevailed for, since World War II. It's about as unrealistic also as his, his demand that the Mexicans pay for the wall that they're going to build uh, um, between America and, and, and Mexico. Now, he, he's also um, suggested, I think, uh, has he not, that, that South Korea and Japan should de develop the, uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah, and that actually follows pretty logically from his view that the U.S. doesn't have an interest because, um, you know, the reason why South Korea and Japan um, doesn't, don't have nuclear weapons is because the U.S. covers them on, under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And so what, while... Um, you know, uh, while we all want to sort of see a world in which nuclear weapons are fewer and ultimately, you know, eliminated while, while they exist, um, countries will be sort of insecure if they're in dangerous neighborhoods. And the, the, the premise of U.S. strategy for a long time has been that if the U.S. provides those, uh, you know, that protection to countries like Japan and South Korea, then they don't need to do it themselves, and that will make their neighbours less insecure, and will try, will help create sort of a zone of peace in North Northeast Asia that will be more stable than if they were all um, reliant on their own efforts. Um, and uh, you know, we we see in the Middle East where there's more um, insecurity about U.S. alliances that countries are doing their own thing, and it's become a lot more dangerous. And so, there's sort of a method. There's a there's a rationale or a logic. Um, to providing, you know, that nuclear umbrella. And what, what Trump really said was he doesn't care very much about that. And if, if there's a nuclear arms race in Northeast Asia because the U.S. pulls out, then that may be a good thing from his point of view. 
And that's something that, you know, U.S. policymakers have tried for really for decades to prevent from happening both in, in Europe, in Asia and in Europe. I mean, in the, the whole point of the NATO nuclear umbrella was, uh, you know, during the, at the height of the Cold War was to ensure that Germany and others did not have to develop their own nuclear capability. And I think that worked out pretty well, um, you know, in the end. So, um, so it, it would be a radical change. And I think it's something that um, if there was actually a risk that he could be elected president, I think that would be very uh, destabilizing in, in East Asia in particular. It's, it's a very odd, uh, his policy it appears to be completely on the, on the wing and not thought out. I mean, you, you've explored some of the issues going back to American strategic uh, thinking over past decades. It, 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 that doesn't seem to have impinged at all on Trump. He doesn't seem to have any understanding of, of that history. And I, I was struck by the fact that he, he's now attempting to repudiate, for example, the previously expressed admiration for, for Putin. And it seems to be that every day there's some different... He's, he's, he's going in different directions. Yeah, so I actually think that he is pretty consistent, um, even though there's lots of... He changes a little bit from day to day. Um, he, um, If you look back, he's sort of been saying the same thing since the mid-1980s. When he was uh, 41 years old, he spent uh, $100,000 to take out a full-page ad in the New York Times in which he published an open letter to the American people on his views on American foreign policy. And it was essentially the same as what we're talking about now. He was complaining about Japan, Saudi Arabia, Korea, and other allies not paying their fair share. He was complaining about trade and saying America was getting ripped off and laughed at. And that, that was at the end of the Reagan administration. And he's basically said the same, he's had the same sort of visceral instincts uh, since then and has always sort of given voice to them whenever he's talked about the international situation. And uh, and so I think it's, you, you're right, he doesn't, you know, the, the sort of history of U.S. foreign policy and strategy hasn't, he hasn't absorbed that at all, but he's had his own counter-narrative um, that he's, he believes uh, very strongly, I think, and he—he he, this is why he says things that sound ridiculous, like, you know, I listen to myself in foreign policy, I'm, a, I'm my own advisor and all of that, because he actually believes that, you know, he's gotten this right all along, and he's, he's something of a prophet on, uh, in terms of, you know, U.S. foreign policy and uh, and he's, uh, you know, he, and that's what that that I think provides the frame for his policy on this occasion. It just happens to be uh, both very dangerous and destabilizing, but also uh, completely at odds with, you know, ninety five percent of of sort of the thinking in U.S. foreign policy since World War Two, and and that's why I think he's had such trouble recruiting advisors. It's because. Many um, Republican foreign policy experts are, you know, uh, are sort of appalled at what he's saying because they believe it's, you know, it's at odds not just with what their party has said, but really what the U.S. has done over half, oh, well over half a century. And and they're right; it is it is very much at odds with that. He he doesn't have many people to draw on who would support that position, and so he's ending up sort of, you know, going. Uh, deep into the bench to find to find people who will sort of uh, you know follow his lead. For a very obscure bunch of advisors, he announced the other day. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, no, the vast majority. I think there was one or two names that were sort of vaguely familiar, but everyone else was um, no one had really heard of. I suppose the the uh, the thing that would worry people most um, is his attitude to the Muslim world, and yeah, uh, it it again it jars also with his supposed isolationism in terms of military force. He's talked about going after Islamic oils, uh, Islamic states' oil supplies, and said that the U.S. United States should take out the families of Islamic state members. Um, that and the attitude to keeping Muslims out of, of America is likely to create very serious ripples in, in the Muslim world. Yeah, oh, just uh, absolutely. Just one, one definitional thing, though, on the whole internationalism versus isolationism thing is isolationism was, has never really been um, opposition to being involved overseas. It's, it's usually been opposition to alliances and to sort of defining interests as, you know, as linked with those of other countries and having sort of a broader sense of engagement. And, and I think you, would, Trump would see his view that, you know, he would oppose that. That's why he's isolationist. But he would think that if the U.S., has a direct interest or is threatened by something that he w is free to do whatever he wants in, in response to that. And I think that's how he squares the circle of, you know, of, of involvement in, in the Middle East. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, and this is actually an um, area of commonality with Cruz. It's just the, the rhetoric, the level of, of hysteria and, you know, anti-Islamic uh, rhetoric in both Trump's policy and even Cruz's policy toward the Middle East is is very very disturbing, and I think it really hurts the U.S. and um, you know President Bush for all of his faults and for all, all the mistakes he made in the first week after 9/11. One of the very first things he did was visit a mosque and actually you know try to send a very clear message that the U.S. was not at war with Islam and. It's sort of amazing that that you know that that is sort of now held up as something that's sort of unthinkable uh, for a Republican Party frontrunner that they've they're really doubling down on on some on on some very sort of divisive uh, rhetoric, basically class of civilizations um, you know narrative, um, yeah. and I think that that really alienates uh, many sort of mainstream Muslims and Muslim countries from from the U.S. And, and, uh, and I think will exacerbate the tensions in the Middle East because it will mean that they, you know, that they uh, you know, can't rely on the U.S. as an ally and then the sectarian, uh, the sectarian Cold War between the Sunni and Shia will, will worsen and I think the general situation will, will, get, will, will deteriorate. And finally, Tom, can he win? I don't think so, um, but I've been wrong <laughs> all along, like pretty much everyone else. So, you know, there, there wasn't, uh, when he, I think, launched his campaign in June, which is still only basically nine months ago, um, I don't think there was a single person who thought he would get as far as he did. I mean, obviously, the, there are some very big differences. Uh, this is still a Republican primary with, you know, a small subset of American voters um, I mean, I, I think that the, the American people are not looking for what he's offering. And, um, you know, while there may be a, a part of the Republican voter base that, that is very angry and, and wants a fundamental change, I don't think that's where the public as a whole is. And so I, I would be 
very, very, very surprised if he won um, the general election. It does look like he will be the nominee. I mean, there's still lots of things that can happen, but um, but he would be the odds-on um, favourite at this stage. I think, though, that one thing, Paddy, in the general, that you know, Hillary Clinton will need to do is to really make a, um, as well as all the negative stuff that will go on about Trump's background and all of that um, and inconsistency, she'll need to make a basic positive case as to why the U.S. should be engaged in the world, why this is a good thing for the U.S. as well as for other countries, and, and why some measure of continuity is important. You know, and she'll have to explain you know, alliances like NATO and, you know, the alliances with Korea and Japan, as well as broader cooperation with the EU and and um, and, a, and a more sort of active approach on issues like climate change and, and pande- you know, uh, global health and all of that. She'll have to explain why that matters and why that's important in a concise way that's sort of comprehensible and resonates. Thank you very um, much, Tom. People. You're listening to The Irish Times. About two weeks ago, Pope Francis approved sainthood for Mother Teresa. The ethnic Albanian-born nun, Agnes Goncha Bolhacu, who was born in August uh, 1910 in Skopje, um, has been known as the saint of the gutters and will be canonised on September the 4th. Patsy McGarry, before I turn to the issue of her merits, perhaps you could talk about the politics of canonisation. Uh, the difference between Francis and John Paul, for example, who who uh, canonised uh, people by the dozen. Before uh, I answer your question, could I say I actually saw the house or the site of the house where uh, Mother Teresa was born in Skopje. Uh, it's in the middle of a road now and there, 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 there's no foundation even left, but they have an outline on the road of the house itself. Uh, where she uh, where she was born. The politics of canonisation are uh, quite fascinating, particularly where current papacies are concerned. John Paul was a firm believer in both beatification and canonisation because he believed everybody was called to holiness. So he beatified over 1,300 uh, personalities and canonised 483, which was the total of all his predecessors put together. Um, it hasn't been quite as exciting, shall we put it, since uh, he died in 2005. Benedict was not uh, uh, as prolific when it came to creation, creating saints or beatifying uh, people. And Francis has been even more reluctant to do so. Um, uh, I don't think that's any deliberate uh, policy on the part of Francis. It just has his other preoccupations, uh, particularly to the reform of the Vatican finances, uh, the setting up of the Commission for the Protection of Minors, and the reform of the Roman Curia, which have been very, very demanding in their own right. Um, what they do in basically uh, canonising a person is is really honour the virtues that that person is said to represent uh, as an indicator to devout Catholics as to the route they should follow in living their own lives. It's an aid to worship. It's not somebody to be worshipped in themselves. Absolutely not. I mean, saints are not people to be worshipped. Nobody's to be worshipped but God, according to Catholic theology. Uh, saints, saints are good people who can intercede uh, with God or with whomsoever on behalf of the person who's praying to them. Um, they are not perfect human beings. I mean, some of the greatest rascals in history have become saints. I mean, St. Augustine famously, I mean, uh, led a pretty debauched lifestyle before, um, through, the, they say, the prayers of his mother, St. Monica, uh, decided to turn things around, become a devout Christian. Uh, in time, he famously said, uh, make me holy Lord, but not just yet, or worse to that effect. 
and turned out to be one of the great um, saints of the Catholic Church. He's one of the 34 doctors of the church. These are super saints who are at a particularly higher level than the ordinary rank or file saint. Um, the the uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux is one of the younger ones of those. She was added to, um, in the last century, having been beatified not long after her death in the 19th century. Now, in creating saints, um, does who is created a saint matter in terms of, of uh, what it's saying to the outside world and to the church itself about the nature of the church at that time? Are, they, are, the, are the list of saints themselves significant? Well, they tend to be presented as a model of the type of person uh, Catholics should aspire to be. Uh, for instance, in uh, uh, beatifying and in canonising Saint uh, Mother Teresa, um, they're obviously uh, highlighting the fact that she devoted her life to helping the poorest of the poor, the uh, people who died in hospices, and because she sent up, she started off by setting up hospices around India, uh, by looking after lepers and people like that, and uh, by basically dealing with people who suffer a lot in this life. Though she's also criticised very seriously so, by the fact that there is a belief she could have done more to alleviate the suffering of such people mm. and that, in fact, she almost encouraged our, our people to suffer as being a way of bringing them closer to God. But what I'm... And we'll come back to, to Mother Teresa. Uh, but what I'm interested in is, is do particular popes uh, nominate particular saints and are there, are there lists, if you like, of saints uh, saying something about the nature of that papacy? That's a very good point, but not necessarily so. I mean, um, Mother Teresa was a great admirer of St. Francis, as is the current Pope who took his name after St. Francis of Assisi. Um, but there was no real consistent pattern where John Paul was concerned, for instance, and he was the great creator of saints in modern times. Now, um, the process of, of canonization is very complicated, and we're, we've reaching, we're reaching the final stage as far as, uh, as uh, Teresa is concerned. Uh, the verification of miracles is only part of that. Can, can you sort of outline the process? Well, there's a four-stage process, Paddy. You begin uh, whereby a person is declared a servant of God. They're believed locally to be very, very holy people or to have been very, very holy people. Sufficient evidence is gathered for that, for the Vatican, to persuade the Vatican to describe that person as a servant of God. More evidence is gathered before they become venerable, which is the next stage, like Matt Talbot here in Dublin is now a venerable. Um, then the next process is the uh, beatification process, and that there must be a proven miracle, uh, proven to the satisfaction of the Congregation for the Cause of Saints in Rome, one miracle, before a person can be beatified or declared blessed. And there have to be two proven miracles before a person can be canonised a saint. And in the case of Mother Teresa, uh, last year uh, there was proof of, of a Brazilian man he, that he recovered from a tumour through her intercession, uh, to, proof to the satisfaction of the causes, uh, the congregation for the causes of saints. And on that basis, they've decided that she is cleared to be canonised and so Pope Francis has announced that she will be so canonised on the 4th of September next. And that uh, congregation includes not only uh, clerics, but doctors and scientists. Absolutely. I mean, scientific investigation is a huge part uh, uh, when it comes to proving miracles of this, uh, uh, of this nature. In other words, cures. They're not just taken on the word of individual. There has to be, there has, there has to be, it has to be proven beyond the explanation of medical science and uh, before the Congregation uh, for the Cause of Saints were taken on board seriously. Now, her elevation uh, is particularly tribute to her work in India, but she started out in Ireland, I believe. She did. She came from Skopje uh, in Macedonia. She was a, a, of Albanian Kosovar background, 
Um, her father died when she was quite young, she was eight. Uh, her mother uh, was a very devout woman, so she came here to Rathfarnham, to the Loretto's, mainly to learn English at the age of 18. And she spent about a year or two here before going with the Loretto's to India and worked with them up to 1950 uh, when she'd set up her own missionaries of charity, having felt, as she calls it, a call within a call or a vocation within a vocation to help the poorest of the poor, uh, beginning with the uh, people who were dying on the streets, opening up hospices for those people, and then extending that to looking at people with leprosy. And uh, the missionaries of charity then spread worldwide. And uh, by the time she died in 1997, there were an estimated 4,500 of them in practically every continent, nearly every country, except China. She never broke China. Right. And um, it has, you know, an, an extraordinary life and, and uh, no doubt great uh, works uh, done. But there has been some criticism of, of her, not only in terms of the way she did her work, perhaps, and uh, but also in terms of her her own position in the church, that her, her politics are very conservative. Um, and um, in some ways it's impertinent for people who are outside the church to be saying you shouldn't be nominating this woman because she's rea reactionary or, or because she didn't. But there are people within the church who are unhappy about her canonisation too. She was a highly complex character for, for a woman who has such a simple image. Um, it, it, it emerged after she died that for about 50 years she wrestled seriously with doubt in the existence of God. Uh, and um, it, it was something that even towards the end, she couldn't be sure of. She felt uh, she wasn't close to God, couldn't feel the closeness to God. Had a brief period after the death of Pope Pius XII in the late 1950s, when she, for about six months, when she thought she'd rediscovered that intimacy of relationship again, but it disappeared. So she struggled and struggled and struggled to the degree that, for instance, when she was dying, the Archbishop of Calcutta sent a priest in to exorcise her in belief that this was part of the work of the devil where Mother Teresa was concerned. I mean, doubt isn't unusual in saints. I mean, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, after whom she was initially called, um, uh, also uh, struggled with doubt for uh, a lot of the period of her uh, life, her young life. And St. John uh, of the Cross, um, a Spanish saint in the 16th century, struggled famously with it. And he gave or coined that great phrase, the dark night of the soul, um, where, he, which, where, where he experienced the absence of God. And in fact, that, that links us to Teresa, the name Teresa, St. John of God in Spain was a very close friend of St. Teresa of Avila, after whom Saint Mother Teresa eventually was called because she did choose the name Therese after Therese of Lisieux, but another member of her congregation had that name, so she had to go for the more formal Spanish name of, of Therese. Other criticisms uh, would be leveled at her because of the manner in which she assiduously took money from any quarter whatsoever, without question, even from the likes of Robert Maxwell, the, the guy who basically robbed the pension fund and mirror newspapers, uh, the Duvaliers, who were uh, dictators in Haiti, um, and other um, uh, less than Charles Keating. Charles Keating, other less than savoury types, and even she even wrote a reference for Charles Keating. Um, so she 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 uh, stood by these people, seeing them as sinners, I suppose, whatever. Um, uh, they were all, of course, very wealthy sinners, which helped, I'm sure, enormously. Um, and on the other side, uh, as you alluded to, she was a deeply conservative Catholic herself, totally opposed to abortion, totally opposed to contraception, totally opposed to divorce. Uh, and all those teachings of the church, uh, she stood wholeheartedly, unequivocally behind them. 
uh, a nun writing in the New York Times in the last couple of days has, has spoken about how canonization recognizes holiness, not perfection. Mm. In fact, that, that imperfection is, is an essential human quality that uh, is very much part of, of sainthood. Absolutely. It is an encouragement for the ordinary individual uh, where sainthood is concerned. In other words, because you're not perfect doesn't mean you can't be a good person too, like such and such a one. Um, uh, to go back a bit, she was a, uh, Pope John Paul, Pope St. John Paul now, was a huge fan of hers. Uh, to the degree that when she died, she died in 1997, um, there's normally a five-year gap before the, the um, saintly process begins with the servant of God. But he sped that up and allowed it to begin two years after she died. And of course, famously, after he died himself, Pope Benedict did the same thing where Pope John Paul was concerned to speed up his canonization process, which of course was concluded in 2014 when he and John XXIII are both canonized. Uh, but there's a, there's a political element to that, undoubtedly, isn't isn't? Aren't both of those uh, accelerated processes saying something about what the the respective popes wanted to say to the church about the models that they aspired to? Absolutely, but also because both were hugely popular internationally. Um, after Pope John Paul died, I mean, I was there. Thousands in Saint Peter's Square were demanding in Italian, "Make him Pope now." Santo Sabito, if that is, if I can remember the Italian phrase correctly. Uh, and uh, Mother Teresa, for all the criticisms uh, by the likes of Christopher Hitchens and others, and they did raise very valid questions about the manner in which she raised her money, who she took money from, the fact that she tended to, if you absolve the wealthy, uh, who uh, did donate. Proselytising too, I think. In, yes, in and also her attitude to suffering, the, to the people she was looking after, that um, not much money was spent, on, if any, on creating comfort for the sick and the dying. It, she saw suffering as a good thing, despite her own doubts. She saw suffering as a way of bringing people close to God uh, and, as, and said that. And so, I mean, the conditions in the hospitals and institutions she ran were not good, were not of a high standard. And that was believed to have been deliberately the case. Whether it was or, or it was not the case, I don't know, but some people certainly believe it was so. Is there particular support uh, for her in Ireland, for her kind of community? She was massively popular here. Anytime she visited here, I mean, the red carpet, so to speak, was turned out for her. I mean, Gay Byrne said of all the people he ever interviewed in his long broadcasting career, she was far and away the most impressive. Um, she was met by various Tishi on her visits here. And she's, as far as I'm aware, she got uh, honoured with the Freedom of Dublin City, one of the few to get it. Um, so she was very highly thought of in Ireland among ordinary Irish Catholics. Thank you very much, Patsy. Thanks to Tom Wright and Patsy McGarry and to our producer John Casey and on sound Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.